Now, friends, we've come here to the second chapter of the book of Joel, and this is the theme, looking to the day of the Lord, the prelude of it. And we were introduced to it back in verse 15 of chapter 1, where it says, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. By the way, I said at that time that when we moved on into this little prophecy, that we would find that the day of the Lord is actually mentioned six times, five times by name, and then it's called that day, and that we would be adding to it. Now, here is Joel, the first of the writing prophets, defining what the day of the Lord is. Now, there had been promised to David a kingdom, and that kingdom became the theme song of all the prophets after that. That's the great message that the millennial kingdom was coming upon this earth. And it was something that sounds like a stuck record when you read the prophets, because one after another looked forward to it. But now Joel comes along the first of the writing prophets, and he makes it clear that the day of the Lord, which of course would include the millennial kingdom when the Lord is ruling on this earth, that it's not all peaches and cream ahead, that it's not all roses and sunshine, that there is coming before the millennial kingdom this time that the Lord Jesus defined as the great tribulation period, and it's included in the day of the Lord. And now we come to chapter 2, and it will make that, I think, rather clear to us. We find that Joel now writes this, "...blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble." For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is near at hand. Now, there's several things that we want to say about this, and let me attempt to enlarge just a little on the day of the Lord again. Here, the first of the writing prophets looks way down, sees the day of the Lord. Now, it opens in darkness, and as we have said before, that that is the Hebrew day. The evening and the morning are the first day. It begins, you see, in darkness, the day of the Lord does. A period of judgment. Then he comes to the earth and establishes his kingdom, and that's when the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and establishes his kingdom upon the earth. Now, we find that all of the prophets mention the day of the Lord also. In fact, it became so commonplace that they could call it the day, or the great day, or that day. And one of the last of the writing prophets, Zechariah, in chapter 14, verse 1, still talking about the day of the Lord. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. So it's obvious that Joel, the first of the writing prophets, uses this plague of locusts as a sort of a springboard to introduce the day of the Lord and what all is involved in it. And we have already called your attention to the fact that when you move into the New Testament, 
it stilleth subject there. And we have discussed that before. But the day of the Lord is mentioned 75 times in the Bible. And actually, it becomes a little monotonous in the last part of Zechariah, one of the last books of the Old Testament. But now notice how he opens this chapter here. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain, that is, from Jerusalem. And this matter of the trumpet is something we need to understand. And I'm going to take the time today to go back to the book of Numbers to pick this up, because it's been a long time since we're in the book of Numbers, and many of you are new listeners. And this is the reason that it's so important to know the whole picture. We need to have a full or view of the Bible. We need on any subject to put are thinking down on all four corners so that we can make an induction. We can gather together what the writer's talking about. And friends, this idea today of just pulling out a little text of Scripture and preaching on it, you can make it mean anything you want to, for that matter. You can take any kind of a sentence. Dr. Warfield always called that torturing a text. And that's what happens to a lot of them. But we need to understand what does he mean here by blowing the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy hill. Now, when the children of Israel started through the wilderness, God had two trumpets, two silver trumpets made. He gave the instructions to Moses. It's found in the 10th chapter of the book of Numbers. Now, I'd like to read several verses here, beginning with verse 1. The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver. Of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. Now, when they were in the wilderness, God used the trumpets to move them on the wilderness march. The first blowing of the trumpet was a signal that everybody should get ready, ready to march. Then when the pillar of cloud would lift and move out, then you would find that they would take the tabernacle down, and then immediately the trumpet would sound again, and Moses and Aaron would move up front, and the tribe of Judah, the ark now has gone out ahead because the Till a cloud is over, now the camp. And each section, each area, on the four sides, three tribes on all four sides would move out. And they moved out by the blowing of trumpets. Actually, there were seven blowings of the trumpets. In other words, seven times. Now, when you come to the book of Revelation, you have the blowing of the trumpets. And a great many today feel that is for the church. Now, the church has no blowing of the trumpet. And there are those that will take that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, what is the last trump there? Well, we've got a group 
today of theologians that try to identify that with the seventh trumpet in Revelation. And there's not a scintilla of suggestion that it's that trumpet at all. To begin with, there's no trumpet connected with the church at all. And those of you that have been with us through 1 Thessalonians, when it says, "...the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout." He's coming personally. He's the one that gives the shout and the voice of the archangel. He doesn't need any archangel to help him raise his own. His voice, because of its majesty and dignity and authority, will be like the voice of an archangel. For when he said, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus came forth. And when he calls his church, they're coming. Most of them have already passed through the doorway of death, and their bodies are asleep throughout this world today. And he will call them. Then it says, Then and the sound of a trump. And somebody has come up with the idea that maybe Gabriel is going to blow a trumpet. Well, Gabriel doesn't own a trumpet, and if he owned one, he couldn't blow it. And that voice, he'll descend from heaven to shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. His voice will be like a trumpet. Now, somebody's going to say to me, do you know that? And I know that. Somebody wrote the other day and said, you sure dogmatic at times. I am when I've got Scripture to back me up, friends. Now, if you'd turn over to Revelation 1.10, you'd find John on the Isle of Patmos. And he was given a vision. He said, I heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet. You mean a voice like a trumpet? Yes. And he says, I turned to see the voice. And you know who he saw? The glorified Christ. It's his voice, you see. Now, at the last trumpet here, my friend, the last trumpet here in 1 Corinthians hasn't anything to do with Revelation. It's his call to the church, and it's his last call to the church. The church is now complete. He takes it out of the world. The seven trumpets over there are identified with the nation Israel, and it's his voice that's like a trumpet. The church has no trumpet today, unless you're going to have a trumpet solo in your church. That's all right, but hasn't anything to do with this. Now, God gave to Israel these trumpets. Now, how are they to use? Well, on the wilderness march, Moses wanted to get everybody together, the elders together, to make some announcement or give instructions why he'd call to have the trumpets blown. And if they were blown a certain way, then it meant a certain thing. Now, notice what he says here in verse 3, "...and when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee, the door of the tabernacle, the congregation." That is, the assembly would be the leaders. Now, in verse 4, "...and if they blow but with one trumpet, then the princes, which are head of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto thee." Then the second way it was to be used, when ye blow an alarm, then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward, and so on down. Then he says in verse 6, when ye blow an alarm the second time, then the camps and so on. Now, after they get in the land, verse 9, and if ye go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets. And ye shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness, and in your solemn days, and in the beginnings of your months, ye shall blow with the trumpets 
over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. I'm the Lord your God. So when they got in the land, and it was the time of war, that trumpet would sound calling the men of war, and it was an alarm to the people to defend themselves that an enemy was coming. Now here he says in verse 1, "...blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain." Why? Well, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord's coming now, for it is near at hand. You see, the Lord has now called His church out of the world. He's turned again to this nation, and they now become the object of a worldwide anti-Semitism. And the day of the Lord comes, and it's near at hand. Now, he's going to have something to say about this, and I would like to say another word or two in this connection. The prophet now begins to look beyond the locust plague to the great tribulation period. In fact, there are two extreme views that we have of this chapter. One view is that all that is mentioned here is just that local locust plague of that day, and it's over with now, and therefore this would be meaningless. Well, you can understand that that is the position the liberal would take. He'd like to dismiss a great deal of the Word of God. And so that's the way that they eliminate this. Then we have extreme fundamentalists, and they see in it only the Great Tribulation period. Now, I think you have here in Joel, as we saw in the first chapter, he just moved right out of the locust plague to the day of the Lord that's way down yonder in the future. What a marvelous blending there is. And that was the practice of the prophets. They spoke into a local situation and then moved out yonder into the future and to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord included the kingdom. But how is it going to open? And will you notice now what he says here? Actually, for the people in that day, it was more than a locust plague. For both the northern and southern kingdom, the Assyrian army was coming down. And he very definitely moves that far ahead. Because he says over in verse 20, but I will remove far off from you the northern army. And I think it'd be rather ridiculous to call a plague of locusts the northern army, the army that's coming down out of the north. He's now moved into the area of the Assyrian. And the Assyrian becomes the picture of the enemy that's coming down from the north in the last days. And that, of course... Many of us believe it in the 38th and 39th of Ezekiel, we've seen that, refers to Russia, the present-day Russia, and they will come down, and God will judge them. In fact, I think that is what really ushers in the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation period. Now, the thought of the day of the Lord for the average person in that day would be, well, the kingdom's going to be established. Yes, but... How does that day of the Lord begin? And we've seen it's not just a 24-hour day. It's a period of time. Paul says, today, if you'll hear his voice, that this is the day of salvation. Well, it doesn't mean any particular day. It means this period of time. 
And it doesn't mean the day of the Lord is not the Lord's day. And as we said before, it's like saying a chestnut horse and a horse chestnut are the same thing. But they're not. You've got two words, but when you arrange them, you come out with something different. It's like saying anti-fat or fat anti. And there's a difference between anti-fat and a fat anti, by the way. And here, the Lord's day that's referred to in Revelation refers, I think, to the first day of the week. We'll see that when we get to it. But the day of the Lord, now is this period of time, and how does it open? Now, listen to this man, Joel, because he's going to put down God's definition that will condition and limit the prophets that will speak in the future. All of them will speak into this period after this. And that, by the way, is something interesting. You don't find any of the prophets contradicting each other in this connection. And I ought to add to that, that some of these prophets didn't know that the other prophets were prophesying at all. Now, verse 2 of chapter 2 of Joel. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, like the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There hath not been ever the light, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Now, this is the same period the Lord Jesus Christ spoke into, and he made the statement here. The prophets had made it. Now, he makes it here. There'll be no day like it. There's no day like it before, nor will there be a day like it afterward. And the great tribulation opens the day of the Lord, because that's the way the Hebrew day opens. It begins in the evening, a time of darkness. Now, I have a notion that when that plague of locusts came over, it is said that sometimes it would darken the sky, that it would be so terrible. And then he moves on, and he says, "...a fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, nothing shall escape them." I think definitely speaking of this plague of locusts, before them it was like the garden of Eden, green, everything green, and rich, luxurious foliage. It was beautiful, but back of it, everything was eaten and destroyed and nothing green was seen. Now, the coming of the day of the Lord on the earth will be like that. When the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride through this world, there'll be a time of famine, a time of great plagues upon the earth, and in one fell swoop, one-fourth of the population is taken out. Another time, a third are taken out. You talk about reducing the population, the great tribulation is going to do it. Now, verse 4, "...the appearance of them is like the appearance of horses, and like horsemen, so shall they run." And as we indicated last time, that actually the locust, when you look at it, the head of the locust looks like the head of a horse. And the Latin word and I should say the Italian word for it means little horse. And as we said before, that the German word means hay horse. A horse eats hay, and they would eat up everything that was green. The appearance of them, here in verse 4, is like the appearance of horses. And like horsemen, so shall they run. Now here he's describing 
this locust plague and beginning to make application of it to the day of the Lord. And he says, like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. That is, to be scorched, be burned. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march every one on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. Now, we have seen that the writer of the Proverbs says that the locusts, that they go forth in bands, but they have no king. They have no leader. They don't need one. Each one knows his place, apparently. And they came in bands, and we believe that when he described four different groups of locusts here, that he's describing actually the movement of a great army. And it's an army here of locusts. Now, in the last days, there'll come up against that land another enemy. It'll be like a locust plague. Now, you have that, and that gives preparation for what John later on is going to write in the book of Revelation. Now, he's going to tell us about a locust plague that will take place on this earth during the time of the blowing of the fifth trumpet. And it's actually the first woe. My feeling is that you're right now in the midst of the great tribulation period with all of its attendant horror, actually. Now, I'm reading from Revelation 9, beginning with verse 1. Will you listen? And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace." And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing. Now, this is an unusual locust. That's all the locusts that attacked. They didn't attack human beings. They attack everything that was green, and they could absolutely denude that which was luxurious and rank green, jungle green, and they could move right through it, destroy everything. And here, these locusts are not going to hurt anything green, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented five months. And we're told that it'll be such a terrible period that men will seek death, not find it. In other words, they'll not be able to commit suicide. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men." They had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and so on. And I want to tell you, that's an unusual type of locust, my friend. 
Now, that will take place during the Great Tribulation. Now, you can see Joel way back here at the beginning of the writing prophets. Joel prepares the ground for John to come along and give us the detailed description of them. So that that's my reason for saying that I think it's tragic today for somebody to get converted. And, well, I don't mean to be converted, but when they get converted, that they start a Bible class. There's so many like that today. They start a Bible class, and lo and behold, they either start teaching the Gospel of John or they start teaching the book of Revelation. Now, in my judgment, that's not where you should begin with believers. I believe Matthew is the key book to the Bible. And until you understand Matthew, I don't think you will quite get the message of John. And I know you'll miss the message of the book of Revelation. And for that reason, we can see now Joel, this little prophet that's been so ignored, it's essential to understand the book of Revelation to know what Joel says here. Now, do I sound dogmatic when I say that? Well, I hope I do, because I want you to know I am dogmatic about this type of thing. And if I can't be dogmatic, I'm not going to say it. Because my feeling is that the Word of God needs to be taught with authority. If it's the Word of God, which I believe with all my heart it is, it's pretty important. And it's lots more dogmatic than some of the things that I hear today coming from government, coming from politicians, come from scientists, and come from the interviews on TV today. The Word of God is lots more authoritative. Therefore, I want to be dogmatic about this because I believe it with all my heart. Now, will you notice, we have this description here of them. Back now in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 7, "...they shall run like mighty men, they shall climb the wall like men of war, and they shall march everyone on his way." You see, already Joel's beginning to move from a local plague on into the future of that which is coming and which he's already labeled twice the day of the Lord. Now, we're going to see that he's talking about the day of the Lord. He says, verse 9, "...they shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief." Well, that wasn't the way the locusts did in that. They were looking for something green. And now we're in Joel. "...the earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble." The sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Now, this just happens to be more than a local locust plague, or else Joel is exaggerating. And the prophets don't exaggerate, my friend. This is the picture that John gives us that's to take place in the Great Tribulation period. Now, verse 11, "...and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army." For his camp is very great, for he's strong who executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Now, here we are back again, and this is the third time that he's mentioned the day of the Lord. That fits in again with what the Lord Jesus said, that except those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. And again, who can abide it? Well, John 
in Revelation gives the answer. He said at the beginning of this period that God shut down everything, all the forces of nature. No wind blowing anything. God says, if there's anybody going to make it through that are my people, they'll have to be sealed. And he sealed 144,000 of the nation Israel, but a great company of Gentiles that are going to be able to go through this period. And this is a good question, therefore, that Joel has asked, who can abide it? What? The day of the Lord. And he's made clear that the day of the Lord begins in darkness, like the Hebrew day, with sundown. But weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. That's the way God does it. Now, we come here to verse 12, and what can God's people do, or what can a sinner do in a period like this? Well, we're told that. Therefore, also now, saith the Lord, turn even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Now, the word turn here means repent. And I am reading verse 12. Turn here means repent. God says to his people who turn from him, their heart is turned from him. He says, now repent. And what does repent mean? Well, repent means primarily, actually not the shedding of tears. That's the byproduct of it. Repent means to change your mind. And then you indicate your change of mind by you turn around. Now, when I first entered the ministry, I went to actually my home church in Nashville as pastor. And I had some of the most wonderful people in that church. And they had to be wonderful to put up with Vernon McGee as pastors, my first pastor, and I was as green as grass. And I, in one sense, was rather serious, but rather frivolous also. I just have to take off for Atlanta, Georgia, or to Memphis, Tennessee, where I'd been in school, and I knew some females in both places, and I'd just take off. And the man that had been responsible for me entering the ministry on the physical side, and that's pretty important. I didn't have any money as a poor boy. He arranged a loan for me and got me jobs and all that. And I loved him as a father, for he was a father to me. But I went to see him one day in the bank, tell him something I had in mind, and he let me know immediately that my idea was not a very good idea, as many of mine have not been. And so... He let me know in no uncertain terms about it. Well, that angered me. And I turned and started out. And so I got to the door, and I thought, this is not right. I owe this man a great deal. So I turned. And you know why I turned around and went back? Because it came to me in my mind, my heart, that I ought to do it. And when I got back there to his office, I saw tears coming down his eyes. By the way, he told my wife, when we were on our honeymoon, we went by Nashville, and he told my wife, he said, Now, I don't know much about you, whether you get angry quickly or not, but Vernon has a very high temper, and don't both of you get angry at the same time. Well, he didn't know my wife then, but that was one of the things that made her so attractive to me was she has a marvelous temper, and 
She's put up with a whole lot from this poor preacher. But that day I turned and went back. Now, what did I do? I repented. I repented of the thing I'd done. And I manifested it in doing the turning and going back. Now, God says to his people, he says, even with your heart, now you're to repent. And the byproduct will be fasting and weeping and mourning. That is the byproduct. A great many people think that if you could go down to an altar and shed enough tears, you're converted. I went through that process as a boy, and it was absolutely meaningless. Now, he goes on, and this is quite wonderful here. He says in verse 13, "...and tear your heart, and not your garment." You see, this is to be a heart experience, and not your garments. And actually, the high priest was forbidden to tear his garments. You don't show it by being a fanatic. You show it by the tear is to be in your heart. And turn unto the Lord. This is repentance. Turn unto the Lord your God. Why? Listen to this. For he's gracious, and he's merciful, and he's slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Now, when we get to the book of Jonah, I'm going to talk about again what it means when God repents. We had it back in the book of Exodus. God does never change his mind. God is immutable. God never changes. But when a sinner repents and turns to God, God has said to him, I'm going to judge you. God says, now you've turned to me, I won't judge you. Why? Because he's gracious and merciful and slow to anger, great kindness, and he repenteth of the evil. That is, it looks like he's changed his mind, but he hasn't changed his mind because God's always good and gracious. And that's what it looked like down in Egypt, that God had changed his mind. But God hadn't changed his mind. He kept on sending the plagues to the Egyptians. And the city of Nineveh, God said he'd destroy it, but he didn't. What happened? Nineveh repented and turned to God. And it looked like God had changed, because God had said he's going to destroy the city. But you see, God doesn't. And why didn't God do it? It's not because he changed his mind, but it's because he is immutable. He never changes, and he's always good, and he's always gracious. He's always merciful. He's always slow to anger. He always exhibits great kindness. And friends, you can depend on God. I don't know how this world's treating you. I don't think the world outside's very kind, very gracious, but God is. And why more people don't go to him where they can get a good deal from him. Now he says here in verse 14, "...who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meal offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God." The Lord will bless you again in the field and in the vineyard, and you'll have a drink offering, and you'll have a meal offering to bring to him. And by the way, the drink offering is mentioned here now, and yet there's no instructions in Leviticus for a drink offering. The drink offering was poured on the other offerings, and it was part of the other offerings, actually. They poured it on, and it went up just like steam, of course, on the hot coals. And Paul, you remember, said he wanted his life to be like that, a drink offering, an offering on the sacrifice of Christ. 
just to go up in steam because he felt he didn't amount to too much. But it was important, the redemption that we have in Christ. What a beautiful, wonderful picture that is. Now, friends, we move on in this second chapter, which is a very important chapter. And here again, the word is sent out, blow the trumpet in Zion. Now, we had that blowing of the trumpet in Zion at the very beginning of this chapter, and we went into detail in the meaning of the trumpet. The trumpet was used to call an assembly and to sound an alarm. Now, it was an alarm before. Now, it is a calling of the assembly together. In other words, that they may be brought together, a message given to them that they might have the opportunity to turn to God because he's gracious and he's good and he's willing to accept them. And so the word here in verse 15 is, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Now, you see, in the Mosaic system, God never gave a fast day. They were all feast days. And God says, Come before me rejoicing. But now when they are in sin and in rebellion against them and have turned from him, the only way you can come to him is come as a sinner to him and come wanting to turn from your sins. Because the message that we saw last time was repent, repent, a message of turning from your old ways. You've been turning from God, not turn to God. And all you'd have to do is call upon him. He'd save you. And that's all you'd have to do today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shall be saved. Now, you don't add anything to that. You don't join a church. You don't go through a ceremony. You don't promise something. You turn to Christ as a sinner. That's the way you come. And this is a call. And the trumpet here is over in the New Testament. We find that the word for preaching or evangelizing or heralding the gospel is kerus. It means trumpet. And now send out the message today. That's what we're doing. We're blowing a trumpet here on radio, best we can. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Now, this is no meeting where you try to get a great many people down front, and many of them come giggling and laughing. This is something solemn. When you turn to God from sin, it's a pretty serious business, my friend. And you're not converted until you do. And I don't care how many times you go down front. I asked a lovely young couple over in Memphis years ago. They came down front in a meeting over there, and I went down and I asked them, I said, is this the first time you've come down? They said, oh, no. They said, we come down every Sunday. I said, why do you come down? They said, well, we want all that God has for us. Well, I said, do you think just coming down here you'll get it? And they said, well, I hope so. Well, I said, let me ask you another question. Have you got it yet? And they said, no. Well, I said, I'd get a little discouraged if I were you. Maybe this isn't the way it's to be done. Maybe God has another way. Or maybe God has his way, and this is man's way, you see. May I say to you, God today wants to be gracious and good to you, wants to save you. But you've got to come his way. 
The Lord Jesus said, "'No man comes to the Father but by me.'" The Lord Jesus is the only door to heaven. "'I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved.'" Now, that is very clear. Now, listen to him here. Verse 16 of chapter 2 of Joel, "'Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that nurse at the breast.'" That makes it possible for the mothers that have little ones that say, I can't come to church. The churches today, thank the Lord, have established nurseries so young mothers can come. But in that day, I have a notion there were a lot of crying babies in the crowd. Now, will you notice, let the bridegroom go forth from his chamber and the bride out of her room. You see, when a man got married in Israel, he was excused one year from going to war. He's excused from a lot of things. And that was an advantage of getting married, I guess, for some of them in that day. But the thing is, God says, this is so important that you be present, even if you're on your honeymoon. Now, he says, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. Now, we're in Jerusalem, you see. Joel is definitely a prophet of the southern kingdom. And let them say, Spare the people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Now, they've been scattered throughout the world today, and I admit that they have a nation today, a government, and a flag, but they're pretty well subject to the nations of the world. And right now, they're in a squeeze play over there. They've got caught in the oil slick, by the way. And that is causing them a great deal of trouble. And it will continue because they're not back there today in fulfillment of prophecy. When God puts them back there, they'll have no problem relative to the oil situation. I read a little clipping that Golda Meir, the statement that she had made. She said, in fact, she inferred Moses had made a mistake. She says, now imagine, he led all of our people around through the wilderness for 40 years and then passed over all that Arabian oil that was there. Well, may I say that I doubt very seriously believes the Old Testament as she did. She'd know there was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day that was leading those people, and he purposely kept them away from the Arabian oil. And I think for a very definite reason, by the way. That really would involve them today. And they never would have got that land to begin with, with all that oil there. And the land they've gotten is not as attractive as you think it is today if you go over there. And the thing they need is not oil. They need water over there. And they don't have that right now. And the judgment of God is upon them. Moses made no mistake because God was leading. And somehow or another, God doesn't make a mistake. Now, will you notice here, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, spare the people. Then they cry out, where is their God? Why should they say among the people, where is their God? In other words, they were wondering what was happening to them. And a young Jewish fellow over there, I met him at the King David Hotel, and he was a sharp young fellow. And he says, if it's as you say that we are the chosen people and God is with us, then why doesn't he intervene for us today? 
And I told him very candidly, I says, because right now you are not with God. And until you come back in repentance to him, you're not even his chosen people because God today's doing a new thing. He's calling out of your people and my people, Jews and Gentiles, the people to his name in the church. And I said, you're just not up to date with God. That is your problem. You're going way back to a mosaic system that just happens to be outmoded. And the latest thing, the newest model is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's wrecked along the highway today, it seems to me, many, many places. Now, will you notice here, verse 18, "...then the Lord was jealous for his land and pitied his people." Now, he's moving definitely into the future. And you'll notice the little key word here, time word. We're going to have that appear several times in this chapter. And here it's then. And if you're familiar with the Olivet Discourse that we considered in Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25, and you'll notice the Lord Jesus used that little word then to advance in time the happenings that are to take place in the great tribulation period. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and pitied his people. That's going to be during the great tribulation period, right before he comes to the earth. Verse 19, And the Lord answered and said unto his people, Behold, I will send you grain and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied with them, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Now, that time has not come. I don't think anyone, even the most radical radical, would say that this has been fulfilled because it's not fulfilled. The largest population of Israel is not in that land. It's out of that land. They're more in New York City than they are in that land. And there's a great company of them even in Russia today. So that this has not been fulfilled. This looks forward to the future He's now beginning to speak definitely into the period that's known as the day of the Lord that begins with the great tribulation period, moves into the millennium, out of darkness and dawn, the evening and the morning of the first day, second day, and moves on into the end of the millennium and past that rebellion when it's put down on the earth and the eternal kingdom begins. Now, we're bottled into that particular period, and I think from here on out, that is the thing that is primary here in this study. Now, verse 20, he says, "...but I will remove far off from you the northern army." Now, he's sure not talking about locusts here. An army is coming down from the north. Now, that was partially fulfilled when Assyria came down, took the northern kingdom, but God delivered his people miraculously in the southern kingdom. And it was another hundred years before they went into Babylonian captivity. Now, the northern army that's coming down in the future is in the 38th and 39th of Ezekiel that we saw. That is, Russia will come down. That'll be during the time of the great tribulation period. And he says, "...I will drive him into a land barren and desolate." with his face toward the eastern sea and his rear toward the western sea. And that just happens to be Armageddon because the Mediterranean's on one side and the Sea of Galilee's on the other side. 
and the valley of Esdraelon, and Megiddo is right between. And he says here, "...and his rear towards the western sea, and his stench shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great things." Now, God will intervene, as we have seen in Ezekiel, and he will destroy this enemy that comes down from the north, and he does it to glorify his name. My friend, God is glorified when he judges sin as much as he is when he saves a sinner. And it's hard for us today to swallow that pill because it's a bitter pill for man to swallow today. But our God's a holy, righteous God, and he's going to judge. And every one of the prophets says it. Now, if you don't believe it, I can say to you very definitely, you don't believe the Word of God. God makes it too clear. He says more about judgment. Now, he doesn't like to judge. Why? Because he's already told us he's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, and judgment is his strange work. But if you don't think he'll judge, well, I know he judges his own children. He's judged me, I know that. And he chastises. And I'd be honest with you, I'm wanting to get pretty close to my Heavenly Father because I don't enjoy either one of them by any means. Now, will you listen to him here? Verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. The tribulation period is going to lead to the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. Now, the church is not in this picture. It's not in the Olivet Discourse. And the church is not in Revelation when you begin chapter 4. You see a group carried to heaven. And the church is no longer on the earth. And somebody says, well, it's not called a church. Well, when the church gets out of the world and gets to heaven, it's not a church. You say, what do you mean? Well, church is ecclesia. That's called out. And God is calling out a people today to his name. When they get to heaven, they've already been called out. They're no longer a church. They're the bride of Christ. The figure changes in the book of Revelation. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice. Now, the land today is under a curse. They may be back in that land, but the curse is not removed from the land. They need water over there. And anybody that's driven down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I've made that trip, I know, a dozen times, my friend, if anybody can call that the Garden of Eden, and anybody can say the desert is blossoming like the rose, that's not my idea of it. That's as desolate as anything that's in Arizona or California. Our desert is not any more desolate than that. Now, will you notice, verse 22, "...be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength." That day hasn't come yet. Verse 23, be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord. Now, who is he talking to? The church? Please, friends, let God speak to who he wants to speak to. And the interpretation is to the southern kingdom, to the children of Zion. And I may sing lustily, I'm marching to Zion, but I'm not marching to Zion down here on the earth. Be glad then, ye children of Zion. And rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, 
and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Now, let's look at that for just a moment. I believe that we're still talking about literal things here. And we're talking about literal rain is referred to here. Now, Joel will make application of it in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which we'll be coming to. But literal rain is referred to here. The former rain came in October, the latter rain in April. And I heard before I went over to that land that the latter rain was returning to that land. Well, I've been over there in April, and it rained a little. But gracious, I don't think you could call that kind of a rain that the Lord's talking about and that they had in the former days when that entire land, all those rugged hills, were covered with trees. Of course, the enemies that have come in have denuded the land, and they're trying to set out trees. But they're having trouble to make those trees grow today because there's not enough of the latter rain. Now, that has not come, and there's a great many references to the literal rain. And I'm not going to take time today to go into that. You have Leviticus, and in my notes I give all the references. Leviticus 26, 3 and 4, passage in Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, Jeremiah, and Hosea. These references make it clear that this passage, I think, cannot be spiritualized. But it refers to literal rain. Now, you can make application of it, of course, if you want to. But let's understand that he's speaking to the children of Zion, and he's speaking about rain in that country, H2O, aqua, hudor, that comes down from heaven. We call it water, rainwater. That's what he's talking about. It's not coming down today, but it will in the future. Now, will you notice, we come to verse 25. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, and the pomerum, my great army which I sent among you. Now God uses a locust plague. He said, you think this land can't be restored? Well, it can be. And God says, that which the locust has destroyed, I will restore it. Now, there have been a great many sermons preached from this, spiritualizing this passage. Well, I don't mind using it as an application because there is stated here a great principle. And you find it again in the book of Revelation when he speaks of the new Jerusalem and those in the church, the sinners that have trusted Christ, are going to be there. Now, he tells about many wonderful things. He's going to wipe away all tears. What a change that'll be because there are a lot of tears in this world. And... Then he says, Behold, I make all things new. And I love that. I do not know about you, but I'm not satisfied with my life down here. I have never preached the sermon I've wanted to preach. I wish I could do it. I've had it in my heart and my mind, but just somehow I've never, never been able to preach that sermon. And I have never been the husband that I've really wanted to be. I wish I could have been a much better husband to my wife when I was sick. She and I, we went back over the days of how we met and how we courted and all that sort of thing. And boy, I tell you, it was wonderful going over those. But I told her, I said, oh, if I could change so many things, it would have been lots more wonderful than it was. And I've never really been the father that I wanted to be. And I haven't been really the man that I wanted to be. And I love that passage in Revelation 
where he says in Revelation 21, Behold, I make all things new. He says, Vernon McGee, you didn't quite make it down there on earth, did you? You never really accomplished your goal. You were frustrated. You were hindered. You were limited. You were down there with that old sinful nature. Now he says, I'm going to make all things new and I'm going to give you a new scratch pad. And now there's no racer on this pencil I'm giving you. And you can write it all out now and you can accomplish what you wanted to accomplish. And friends, I believe that's what is going to make heaven heaven for so many people is the fact that they're going to be able there to do the thing and to be the person that they wanted to be down here, but they've been hindered by circumstances, by sin, and by environment, and so many things, and even heredity. What a glorious thing it'll be to be in his presence. And this can be applied to that. This is a principle I'll restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. What a day that's going to be. Verse 26, and he now is talking about the day of the Lord. He's made it very clear. Joel, as he began with the locust plague, and he blended it in, and he gave us a marvelous turnover from that local plague as he looked down through the centuries to the day of the Lord that was coming that began in darkness. The great tribulation period is the way our Lord labeled it. And then he moves on into the future. And he moves into the great tribulation period, the coming of Christ to the earth, and then the millennial kingdom. And we're moving into that period now here when he said, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice. The day was coming. Now in verse 26, he says, And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. Now, that's when he's in the midst of Israel, when he comes to the earth and establishes kingdom. And then there will be fulfilled at that time all of the physical blessings that God promised the nation Israel. And their blessings in the Old Testament were largely physical blessings. The blessings of the land, a bumper crop, the vineyards and the fields and the cattle and the sheep and all of that. And the spiritual blessings actually seem to be secondary. Now to the church, he's only promised spiritual blessing to us. And now... He comes to the spiritual blessings for these people. Now we've come to this very controversial passage of Scripture, and I have a letter here from a lady that was involved in the tongues movement, and she's written me a very lovely letter, and she says that my books and the program have brought her to the place where she is out of that, but she cautions me. She says, I know many of these people in the tongues movement and their changed life is real and it's wonderful. And then she cautions me here. She says, Dr. McGee, 
I hope that you will not use any cutting remarks. And I want to say that you cut me saying that because you're accurate. I have done that. And I have been rebuked for it by others. One Pentecostal preacher said, you do not go after other groups in a way that you go after us. And we are for you because we agree with you on so many things. You just happen to be wrong on certain things. Well, may I say that I've been wrong in that connection of being ugly about it. And so as I come now to this passage of Scripture, all that I want to do is to give to you at least my interpretation of it. I could be wrong. I was wrong one time, you'll recall. So I could be wrong here. But I don't think so. But I'd ask you to listen to it very carefully. Now, again, I'd remind you that we are in the little prophecy of Joel, and everything that Joel is saying, he began with a locust plague. It was a local locust plague. Nothing like it. And he compares that to what is coming way down in the future, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord just doesn't bring in the kingdom in all the brightness and rose water that you can sprinkle around. It opens with the great tribulation period. Then Christ comes to the earth. Now he's moved in here to that period when the kingdom is established. And as we saw in verse 27 here, the Lord's in the midst of them. Now what's he going to do? Now we're talking about the spiritual side. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out of my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now, there are so many wonderful things we can say about this passage of Scripture. First of all, Dr. Charles Feinberg, who is an outstanding Hebrew scholar, and he is a Hebrew, and he has a very fine series of books on the minor prophets that have been very helpful to me. And he calls attention to something that I actually had not known before that in the Hebrew Bible, that this actually is a separate chapter, beginning with verse 28 of chapter 2, where it says, "...it shall come to pass after that I'll pour out my Spirit." And down through verse 32, that you have the third chapter. And what we have is the third chapter is really the fourth chapter in Joel. Now, this is important enough, I believe, to make it a separate chapter. But we need to be very careful now 
that Joel's prophecies are confined to a period of time known as the day of the Lord. He introduces it. He's the first of the writing prophets, and he tells what's going to take place in that period. He has emphasized the fact the way it begins, and it begins in darkness, the great tribulation period, and our Lord gave it that name. And the verse here, or the word, I should say, that seems rather important, and it shall come to pass afterward. Well, what does he mean that it will come to pass afterward? Well, you remember when we were back in Hosea, in the third chapter of Hosea, that very important little chapter back there, in verse 5, he says there, afterward, there's that important word, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, we identified the latter days as that period of the great tribulation period which ushers in the kingdom by the coming of Christ to the earth. And that is the beginning of the millennium. Now, I take it that we now are speaking of a very definite period of time, that this prophecy is to be fulfilled during the time of the day of the Lord, and it's afterward, after that night of the great tribulation period, God will pour out His Spirit. Now, that is the passage of Scripture that we have here. And since he's the first of the writing prophets, he's not the only one that mentions the pouring out of the Spirit. For instance, Isaiah, over in the 32nd chapter, verse 15, he says, "...until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest." Now, he is speaking of the kingdom that's coming on the earth. And the pouring out of the Spirit there has reference to Israel, has reference to the millennium. And none of the prophets, of course, spoke of the church. Now, he's not the only one. Ezekiel, in the 36th chapter, beginning with verse 27, he says here, "...and I will put my Spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes." Ye shall keep my judgments and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your father. Now, you can't apply the pouring out of the Spirit to you today. What land did God ever give to your fathers? Well, this, to begin with, refers to a particular people. And for a particular period, you see, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And this is very, I think, very important to see. Now, Zechariah, one of the last of the writing prophets, he says this in Zechariah 12, verse 10, "...and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications." And Joel here makes it clear, if you read it all the way through, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved, for in Mount Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance. Now, if you want to repeat even the day of Pentecost, you're going to have to go to Jerusalem to do it. It has to do with geography, it has to do with a time period, and it has to do with the people. Now, the question arises, what did Peter mean 
on the day of Pentecost when he referred to this passage of Scripture. Did he mean it was fulfilled? No, he didn't. And he didn't say that, by the way. Now, I'm going to turn over there just to pick this up. We're not teaching Acts. We're teaching Joel. But I want us to see now how this is applied. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, and here these men were speaking to these Jews who had come in from all over the Roman Empire, and I think even beyond it, and they're hearing these men speak in their tongue. There was not an unknown tongue there that day. Every person heard many of them speak in his native mother tongue that he was raised in. At that time, the Jews were scattered throughout the Roman Empire pretty well. And later on, they were entirely scattered, and Jerusalem was destroyed. But now they've come up there for the day of Pentecost. And here, each man hears them speak in his own tongue. Well, many believed, but a great many there began to mock. And they said, well, these men are filled with new wine. They're drunk. That was the impression that they gave. And so Simon Peter is the one that gets up to answer them. And he begins on that note. He says, For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. In other words, that sure isn't Los Angeles. In that day, they didn't get drunk in the morning. Today, they start out pretty early in Los Angeles. Now, he does not say here, and if you'll note it very carefully, he does not say that this is in fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said. Now, very frankly, that's the formula that you'll find all the way through. All of the gospel writers used it. Paul used it. He would say this is done in fulfillment. And very frankly, I'm not going to turn to all of them, but let me just turn to one. Let me turn to two. Over in the second chapter of the gospel of Matthew, in verse 17, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice. Now, that was a fulfillment of prophecy that had to do with the birth of Christ. And then again, if you drop down to verse 23, it says, He came to Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. Not just one. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, that was in fulfillment of prophecy. And Paul, in that great sermon in Pisidia, in Antioch, he said concerning the second psalm, This is my son, this day have I begotten thee, that it referred to the resurrection. And he quotes the second psalm in reference and says this is in fulfillment. Now, what does Peter do? Peter says, But this is that. This is like that. This is similar to that. Now, again, put yourself back there. He's not talking to Gentiles. There's not a Gentile there. If he was, he was out of place. Those were Jews, schooled on the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament because those that would come up to Jerusalem knew that they were required to come up according to the Mosaic Law. Now he says, you're ridiculing, mocking this thing that's happened. This is similar. This is like that which is going to take place in the last days. And then he does something quite interesting. He quotes all of Joel's prophecy here, and he says, 
I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. Now, was that fulfilled on the day of Pentecost? No. 3,000 were saved. But someone has said there could have been 300,000 there. So I wouldn't call that a fulfillment of prophecy at all. It's similar to that. You've mocked it. But you ought to recognize that your own word says the day's coming. God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. If it's poured out on a few today, you ought not to be surprised at that. He's answering them. And then he went on to quote what was to take place. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and so on. Well, by the way, was that fulfilled? Of course it was not. That did not take place at that time. So that I think that we need, if we understand the book of Joel, you would never come to the conclusion that Peter meant that it was being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. This passage of Scripture will be fulfilled. And all that Peter's answering, these that were mocking and says, you man know there's a day coming when God's going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Well, He's pouring it out now on some. It's not the fulfillment of the prophecy because we haven't seen earthquakes and the stars and the heavens are not responding at this time. And He identifies it before that great and terrible day of the Lord. And friends, the day of Pentecost was not a great and terrible day. We believe it was a very wonderful day, by the way. Now he said, "...whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord." And it reveals that at that time, and this is one of the many passages that caused me to make the statement from time to time that I think the greatest time of salvation is yet in the future. God has yet to save more of the human race than are going to be lost. I agree with Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, I don't think God's going to come out on what he meant, the short end of the stick. God intends to win more than will be lost. And I think the greatest days are turning to God when he pours out his Spirit on all flesh. That's not true today, my beloved. We're not living in that day. And I don't mean to be ugly about it, but I do mean to be very insistent and dogmatic about that because I do think it's important to fit this into where it belongs. Now, if you'll notice chapter 3, it opens like this. For behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, actually, chapter 3, verse 1 goes along with that, you see. He's still speaking about the same thing. And what is he talking about? In those days. What days? Well, when the kingdom is set up upon this earth, when he brings again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, he hasn't done that yet. And it's yet in the future. And he hadn't done it at the time of the day of Pentecost. Now, I'm sure that you can see that this must fit into the context of what Joel is saying. And I do believe this is one of the many instances of just reaching into Scripture without any understanding of a book of the Bible and the purpose of it and the message of it and just lift out a few verses and make them apply to some local situation because you want it to apply to a local situation. Now, that's done by a great many today. And very candidly, friends, 
That's the reason we're going through the Bible as we are. I have to take it up as I come to it. Therefore, I trust that today we can see that this passage of Scripture is all important. I think everybody agrees to it, but it's yet to be fulfilled yonder in the future. Now, again, may I call your attention to the fact that is, that which is so controversial today, the pouring out of the Spirit that Simon Peter referred to. Now, Simon Peter merely used that as an introduction to answer those that were mocking. And he didn't say it was in fulfillment. He said, this is that. And obviously, it was not fulfilled because the prophecy says, and as Simon Peter quoted it, the Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. Now, that'll be when Christ comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. The millennium is going to be the greatest time of individuals turning to God that I think that the world has ever seen. I think during the great tribulation, there's going to be a great turning to the Lord, lots more than there's ever been in the church age. And then another thing that's mentioned here is the fact that all of these signs in the heavens, the heavens shaken, the stars blotted out, as it were, and that there would be the wonders in the heaven. Well, that certainly did not take place on the day of Pentecost. Now, the question arises, then what was the subject of Simon Peter? The subject of Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost was the Lord Jesus, and in verse 24, he sums it up, whom God hath raised up. And then he takes as his text of Scripture, he says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. Now, here is the fulfillment of prophecy, you see. Now, he makes it clear that the prophecy in Joel wasn't fulfilled, but the fact that God would raise up one in David's line and that he was referring to Christ because he'd raised him from the dead. Now, here is his message then, verse 32 of chapter 2 of Acts. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we're all witnesses. Now, he says to them, what you have seen here today, the pouring out of the Spirit upon 3,000, that was all, plus the apostles and those that were gathered there in prayer. And it's estimated, what, 120? Couldn't have been much more than that. And I'm not arguing for numbers. The only thing I'm trying to say is the Spirit was not poured out on all flesh. And the conclusion, his application in verse 36 is, Therefore let all the house of Israel know. Now, he's talking to the house of Israel. Assuredly, that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, that is the thing that is important to note in that message. And it's not today an experience that you have, but it's to come to know Jesus Christ. And it's the place that he occupies in your thinking, in your life, in your ministry, in your actions. What place does Jesus Christ occupy today, friends, in your life, 
And that's important. Now, what he's talking about back here at the book of Joel, and I go back and I read again at verse 1 of chapter 3. For behold, in those days... What days? Day of Pentecost? No. And at that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem... Now, he didn't bring them back. In fact, the matter is, the Lord Jesus reversed the orders. He says, ye shall be witnesses unto me, beginning at Jerusalem and ending up to the ends of the world. So that instead of bringing the captivity back to Jerusalem, those now that have been born again and are in the body of believers, the church of which Christ is the head, the head is saying, go to the ends of the earth. Take this message out that I'm back from the dead and that God is gracious and long-suffering and merciful, and whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, he'll be saved. That's all you have to do is just to turn to him. It seems so simple that a lot of smart people miss it today. And how wonderful it is. Now, somebody says, all you do is believe? Yes. Now, I do not believe, therefore, in a work salvation. That's obvious. But I do believe in a salvation that works. That's important. If you've been saved, you'll want to get this word out. If you don't, friends, I'd go back and question your faith, not your works. It's your faith, because faith works. And we've seen that in the epistle of James. Now, will you notice verse 2? He says, I will also gather all nations... And I'll bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And that's there at Jerusalem, by the way. And I will judge them there for my people and for my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. And that, when the Lord Jesus comes to the earth, believers would have already appeared before his judgment seat, see whether they're going to get a reward or not. But now when he comes to the earth, He's going to judge to see who's going to enter the kingdom. And you have their very marvelous prophecy. Now, that is not alone in Joel. Here's the first of the prophets who says it. All the prophets mentioned it. When you come to one of the last of the prophets, Zechariah, in the second chapter of Zechariah, verse 10, listen to him. He's saying the same thing. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. That's what he's just told these people at the beginning. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. Now, that is the great hope, the bright hope of these people that the Lord was coming to establish his kingdom on the earth, and at that time the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. Now, I keep reading here in verse 3 of chapter 3, by the way. And he says here, "...and they shall have cast lots for my people, and have given a boy for a harlot, sold a girl for wine, that they might drink." And this is an awful thing. You and I are living in a day, I get a little provoked sometime at this society for the prevention of cruelty to animals. 
And they do come up with some unusual demands today about how animals should be treated. In fact, they post to the fox hunt now, but the fox generally gets away, so they don't need to worry about it at all. And they're posed, of course, to hunting and all that type of thing, a shooting of game. And they haven't been down to the stockyards yet to stop the slaughter of cattle because most of them like porterhouse steaks and sirloin steaks and primary roasts. And if you do, uh, you just couldn't, I don't think, conscientiously belong to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. But friends, that's not the thing. I don't mind that. I think that animals should not be mistreated. They're suffering from man's sin. I think today the great cruelty is to children. The cruelty to children is one of the most appalling things that's happening in our day. And down here in Southern California some time ago, a mother and some fellow she'd picked up with, some no-good, near-do-well nobody, and he beat the little fellow. She had a child, a little boy, precious little boy. What a Beautiful picture it was at the beginning, and then they had a picture of it near the end, the way he'd been beaten and mistreated, and finally the little fellow was killed by being beaten by this fellow. And actually, there was not much stir here in California that mistreatment of a dog has caused more furor in our community than mistreatment of that. The mistreatment of children today is one of the signs of an end of an age. And believe me, all of these runaway children today, why are they leaving home? And I think every parent, when a child runs away from home, my friend, you need to get down on your knees before God and ask him what you did wrong. And somebody says, well, he got with the wrong crowd. And we need the psychologist to tell us. My friend, you don't need that. The Word of God says very plainly, and the day comes, and this was an evil day, that they would actually cast lots and they'd give a boy for a harlot. And how many fathers today are setting the right kind of an example to a son and a girl is sold for wine? How many girls are being plunged into immorality today because of liquor that's in the home? A young girl arrested the other day that has become a harlot, asked where she took her first drink. She says, with her mother. God have mercy on the mother that would do a thing like that. And I say to you today, somebody needs to speak out in this so-called suave, sophisticated age that tries to think that we're advancing in civilization and we're going down the tube so fast it's making us dizzy today. Now let me move on here. Oh, they're going to say I'm in politics today. Verse 4, Yea, and what have ye to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will ye render me a recompense? And if ye recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? You've gone past the time. Now, you couldn't turn to me sincerely. Because ye have taken my silver, my gold, and have carried into your temples, my precious things. The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have you sold unto the Grecians, that you might remove them far from their border. 
You see, even at this time, the children of Israel were being sold into slavery. And this was before Rome had come to power. Verse 7, Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which ye have sold them, and I will return your recompense upon your own head, and I will sell your sons, your daughters, into the hand of the children of Judah, and they shall sell them to the man of Sheba, to a people far off, for the Lord hath spoken it. And God's judgment on Tyre and Sidon, which we have seen back in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, for that matter, these prophecies concerning Tyre and Sidon were literally fulfilled. Now listen to this, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm strong. Now, Somebody says, well, I thought the Bible said that you're to beat your swords into plowshares. It does, but not yet. It says that when the kingdom is established on the earth, when Christ is ruling, get rid of your swords. But until then, you better keep your ammunition dry, and you better be prepared. And I don't buy this that we are to get rid of guns today. And I think we need to protect our homes and protect our loved ones and protect our nation. You and I are living in a big, bad world where there are a lot of wild animals that are loose today. They're human beings. They're two-legged, but they're mean. They're ferocious. They'll destroy you today. And there are nations that are like that. In fact, that's the way God describes nations. Calls one a lion, another a bear, another a panther, and another a nondescript beast. Believe me, friends, the nations of the world are like wild beasts. And we need to keep a few atomic bombs today. I don't buy all this peace move just by saying peace, peace. Because Paul said the day they're going to say peace, peace, then that's the day sudden destruction will come upon us. And I think we're going to have our teeth jarred out one of these days by the falling of a bomb, and we won't be able to retaliate because we have too many soft-hearted and soft-headed leaders today. Now, blame me for talking politics. They've got that on the United Nations today. The passage in Isaiah, beat your swords into plowshares. I think they ought to put this verse up there. Beat your plowshares into swords. Be prepared. You're in a bad, bad world. Now it says, let the nations be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the nations round about. Now the Lord Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 that he'd be there to judge them. And they're going to be judged according to the way that they have treated his people. Somebody says, are they peculiar? No. Are they better? No. Why? Well, because when the church is removed, that 144,000 are going to be the only witnesses that are upon this earth. And this idea of saying, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, he says, I'll reward you. And a great many people think that excuses them for putting a dime or 25 cents in the collection plate because it's a little bit more expensive than a cup of cold water. However, water's costing quite a bit in Southern California these days. Now, may I say to you, in that day, it would cost you your life 
to give a cup of cold water to one of the 144,000 that was witnessing for Christ throughout the world. Now, this is the picture that he's giving here. Now, we have verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. And when he talks about a harvest, it's the end of the age. Come, get down, for the press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And again, he defines this period as the day of the Lord. Now, Joel won't let you forget it. And I do not think you can lift anything that Joel says outside of the parenthesis of the day of the Lord, beginning with the great tribulation, the rapture of the church, and continuing on through the second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom, and then deciding who's going to enter the kingdom, and then for 1,000 years the reign upon the earth, then a brief period of rebellion when Satan is let loose, then a final judgment in the great white throne, and eternity begins, and up to eternity you have this next parenthesis. So we're in the confines of that. Now again, he speaks of the disturbance in the heavenly bodies. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. Stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion, utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mount. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. And Jerusalem is still being trodden down of the Gentiles. If you've been over there, we couldn't even get into the garden tomb and get a seat because it was crowded with tours. Who are they? Jews? No, they don't even come around it. Though those that are there just happen to be Gentiles from all over the world. Tours coming and going all the time. The day is coming when that will not be the tourist attraction. The Lord himself is to be there. Now, verse 18, and we move into the time of the kingdom. It shall come to pass in that day. What day? Now, Joel makes it clear what day he's talking about. That's the day of the Lord, that the mountains shall drop down new wine. We're in the kingdom now. And the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters. And they're short of water now. They won't be in that day. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Chittim. And that's interesting. The valley of Chittim is on the other side of Jordan. And how could it flow from Jerusalem across Jordan? Because Zechariah says that the mountain will be split. And instead of that great rift that today runs all the way from way up above Byblos in Lebanon and comes down through the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan Valley, the Dead Sea, and goes on into Africa, it's going to run the other way, going to run east and west. Egypt shall be a desolation. Edom shall be a desolate wilderness. God will judge them even into the millennial kingdom for the violence against the children of Judah because they've shed innocent blood in their land. They've always been an enemy of the nation Israel. But Judah shall dwell forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. 
for I will avenge their blood that I have not avenged. God hasn't moved in their behalf. For the Lord dwelleth in Zion. He doesn't dwell there today. Jerusalem is as pagan and heathen as any city on top side of this earth today. But the day is coming when the Lord is going to dwell there. Then these things will be fulfilled, friend. You're not seeing fulfillment of prophecy over there unless you saw him over there. And I don't think that's where you see him. Because right now, at this moment, he's up under God's right hand. Oh, if we were only conscious of him all the time and had the reality of his presence in our lives. All right, we've finished Joel. Next time, we go back to the New Testament, to First Peter. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.